got the mug. We got we got lots of people this time. It's gonna be great. Uh, I kind of um, read it very like I didn't read it very closely. So, but I did enjoy uh, what they're talking about in chapter eleven. Dual dual power. But apart from that, my commentary is going to suck. <laughs> it's all good. I know the first time we read this, we had several weeks where we were just like, is there anything to actually discuss? Because Trotsky kind of like beat the hell out of that horse. So what do you say after that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I kind of feel like it's this very... might be one of those weeks. Yeah. He's he's going going very deep into like, um political parties and like naming people that have never been named before and who yeah, shall never be named again that's my gripe is like there's so many names in just like a few sentences that i'm like okay <laughs> should i focus on this and like remember this guy's name or is this going to be just a fleeting moment for this character that's uh, fair let's let's with some foresight here's some names that will be important okay Lenin, that's what that's an important one. Uh, okay, that's kind of a joke. Obviously, we knew that. Uh, Lenin and Trotsky. Um, I think most of the Bolsheviks. Are, yeah, Trotsky's a good one. Uh, a lot of the Bolsheviks are going to kind of be important, but um, like like Kamenev and Zinoviev, we're gonna they're gonna come up again. So pay attention when they uh, are mentioned. Kamenev and Zinoviev are some good names. Uh, for what's relevant for just the history of the Russian Revolution, Kerensky for sure, and Milyakov. Those two will play pretty important roles. Uh, Kerensky in particular. Uh, there's a guy called Kornilov who will come up at some point too. He'll he'll make uh, important impacts. Uh, yeah, I, I I think Kornilov like had a affair with his wife. I was pretty famous or something like that. Th that's why he's important, right? Wait, sorry, say again. I got like distracted. Ah, uh, nothing. I I made a silly little shock. I said, ah, yeah, I think Kordilov like had a pretty famous affair with his wife or something. That's why he was important, right? Oh, did he really though, or? No, no, it's just a shock because he's got the Kordilov affair. Oh, the first time when you cheat on someone. Okay, that's funny. Got it. I'm just slow, sorry. <laughs> that is kind of funny. Kornilov affair, I get it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. And so, thinking about, I think someone mentioned how Trotsky went deep in this time around. Speaking of going deep, Trotsky sure likes talking about a red cock, doesn't he? Yeah, he kind of does, doesn't he? <laughs> It definitely comes up quite a few times. I guess we can like kind of officially start because I don't think anybody else is gonna gonna be joining. We're almost at that five minute mark. <clears throat> um, yeah, so chapter eleven was the the dual power chapter, aka why you should now be able to laugh anytime you hear a group of three self proclaimed Marxists saying that they are building institutions of dual power, and that's what they're focused on in their party right now. Uh, would anybody like to take a crack at maybe not even necessarily summarizing, but just kind of talking about dual power, uh, 
the ch- as as it related to the chapter and things like that. Um, I would like to to take a crack at it. So dual power, he's basically saying that like dual. Well, first of all, dual power isn't even a direct translation. Um, it's the original word that they use cannot be directly translated which can mean like dual sovereignty or dual power regime but basically like dual power is saying that when there's two classes with conflicting interests their own they can only resolve their conflict through civil war essentially and that they cannot share power um and uh yeah basically uh, one government one sovereign government is a class holding its interests um and sort of enforcing it on the entire rest of the population uh which you know I think, you know, not every Marxist would agree, particularly I'm thinking of like in Chile with um, the popular, what, what was what was Chile? Yeah, it's, Chile's government. Yeah, it was the Unidad Popular. Yeah, United Popular. Oh uh, yeah, Unidad Popular. Yeah, where, you know, they want to share, oh, another person, let's go. <laughs> Or they wanted to share power with, you know, different classes, particularly, you know, bourgeois, petty bourgeois class. They left, unfortunately. You bored them out of it, man. No, it's all right. People tend to do that. <laughs> hey, you're a big one. You're a big one, brother. You know, we gotta we gotta keep it friendly, right? A little lively. Uh, yeah, no, that's a, a pretty good uh, kind of summary talking about things. Anybody else kind of want to comment and try and put it in their own words kind of thing? Mug, Panda? Let Mug go for us if, if he wants. Uh, I don't really have much else to add. I feel like that was pretty succinct. I mean, I thought what was interesting about maybe this situation is that this like dual power is situation is kind of funny because i mean it's like the people that are trying to institute the dual power don't necessarily want the power so it's like just a constant kind of back and forth of who's going to take it uh so i thought that was just kind of entertaining yeah yeah uh panda you want to give it a crack yeah sure uh, basically, what I talk about the chapter is that it is it, really insane to say that someone is trying to build, build pa- dual power intentionally. Dual power is not something that you build intentionally. You, as in your side, you try to build up your own power, your own ability to control all the territory, your own sovereignty, and all of that. And, and because the other side also has that kind of power, that's what creates the dual power. But to say that someone is trying to build dual power is 
Inter. To be wrong about what other person is trying to do, or to count that other person an idiot for, for not realizing that's not how things work. Basically, dual power is just the natural state of, of things at the moment which, in which a fight is going to eventually happen, and what it hasn't happened yet between two sides, both of which are trying to claim sovereignty about a shared territory. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and and like uh, Chris was saying, basically it's um it it stems from uh, two classes with with hostile interests that have both managed to organize and elevate themselves to a point where they're contenders for state power, and that's kind of what makes I don't know if people have had any experience kind of with like little small leftist organizations who who claim that they're in the process of like building organs of dual power or whatever it it, it kind of makes it laughable because dual power is fundamentally like a, a class-wide phenomena kind of thing it's not something any one party much less like a little party of like five people or something can have any remote chance of constructing like it, but because it's a class-wide thing, it's something that has to happen as as like an insurgent class movement. Um, you're, you're not going to do it just with you know even a large party like the Bolsheviks were like you know there there were thousands of them or whatever. And it's like you can't just like conjure dual power into existence. It has to kind of come to a head because the interests of classes have become intense enough that it requires them to to organize on the scale that. Uh, starts to make them contenders for state power. And yeah, it's uh, in the chapter, Trotsky gives a couple of historical examples, which if you're not familiar with the history, Trotsky kind of gives it a decent-ish overview, but he does kind of tend to assume the reader has some kind of familiarity. He gives uh, a little bit of a summary of like the English Civil War with Cromwell, and he gives a little summary of like the French Revolution. Um, and, the, and the different dual power regimes that uh, occurred during those times, but and then yeah, like like we were saying, it's it's kind of amusing in this particular instance. The dual power is uh, fighting over who they, people don't want the power, <laughs> like we were talking about in our last uh, meeting. That nobody's really interested in holding the power right now, um, and I feel like chapter twelve kind of talks more about why that is um why is it that nobody's interested in holding the power kind of on the the level of like the characteristics of the party and like the individuals who are representing the party gets kind of like a big chapter on people and parties it's another one of those setting up the board kind of chapters and we'll get things moving again here in a couple of chapters so uh, does anybody kind of want to talk about Chapter 12 a little bit? Maybe some of the more amusing characters or anybody that stood out? Because I know there were a lot of different names and parties here, so I don't expect us to be able to cover all of them, but if there's any kind of like particular people that stood out to you or if you had any specific questions or comments or want to try to take a crack at summarizing Chapter 12 a little bit, we'll we'll open the floor. Dan. Dan stood out to me. I don't remember why he was important, but the fact that there's a guy named Dan in this was my favorite part. Yeah, like, it's, it's, such, it's such a weird, weird thing for uh, a girl in this area to be Dan, but I don't think any of us actually know if just a come out Dan or Amongst the oceans or not, but Dan, just a guy called Dan and 
the the fact that Trotsky cast him down like oh yeah uh, that's something so that's something almost anybody knows about that's done yeah done such a distinctive name it, it's just yeah, kind of funny wrong. you got names like you know Vladimir Ulyanov uh, uh, Stalin's full name is quite a little mouthful too and then it's like Dan and like Dan's name is next to Martov and Zaratelli, which is has an interesting spelling too. And then it's it's just Dan. That, that's pretty amusing. Yeah. So Dan is one of like um, Martov and Zaratelli. He's with the uh, the Menshevik uh, group. He's one of kind of the the three leading folk there. Like I said, along with Martov and Zaratelli. So that, that's kind of where Dan falls in as far as like the the party is concerned. So speaking of Georgians, man, Trotsky really he has a beef against them, doesn't he? No, no, I, I was making a joke because of the Mexicans, Mexicans are played mostly Georgians. They and uh, then later Trotsky we also have his very famous differences. Let's say with another Georgian, you know, it kind of funny how. Or much, or Trotsky kind of has beef with Georgians in a yeah, in a I way, you. you know. I didn't realize so many of the Mensheviks were Georgians. Go on, so, on, sorry. I'm just trying to remember this chapter because I really don't remember much. I read it earlier this week, but I, I like wrote down that like there's like two blocks. Like you had the Mensheviks, the social revolutionaries, and the liberal bourgeoisie, like in one block. And the Bolsheviks on their own. And like the social rev, uh, revolutionaries were like allied with landowners, whereas like Mensheviks were kind of more with industrial capitalists. Um, and that was kind of like the situation, I guess. I don't know. That's I'm just reading something I wrote down. Kind of curious if that's correct way that's to understand spot on the Mensheviks would be considered kind of the party of the city and the socialist revolutionaries would be considered the party of the, the countryside basically and so like so ostensibly both groups are trying to appeal or have been in the past appealing to the workers and peasantry respectively um but now that things have seriously hit the fan their kind of true colors are coming out and a lot of this chapter is kind of dedicated to Trotsky just being like, yeah, so these guys claim to be Marxists and revolutionaries and stuff like that, but it's kind of because they had to, even though they're really kind of like these revolutionary bourgeois kind of elements, because there was no other uh, like ideology that you could sustain as like a revolutionary ideology, because you can't... You're not going to convince the the bourgeoisie or landowners to to have like a, a revolution in Russia because they're they're not interested in it really. Um, but at the same time, in order to make Russia a fully capitalist nation, it was going to require an overhaul of the land the land system, uh, getting the czar out and restructuring property uh, across the nation. Basically, it was going to take a revolution to get to capitalism. So, the only ideology they could cloak themselves in revolutionary enough was like a marxism kind of thing but when it came down to it they weren't really uh committed to it so to speak now what's oh sorry do you want to go on now 
I was gonna say, like, yeah, it sounds like they're more like ideologically Marxist than like anal analytically Marxist, I guess. Yeah, so what's kind of interesting too about it though, the the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks kind of form a unit insofar as they're both based in the cities in the industrial proletariat where the Mensheviks are going to kind of defect off and not really wind up supporting the workers. The, the Bolsheviks actually will and they'll have that real grounding in with the workers. But the socialist revolutionaries as as the party of the country don't actually have that other party. Instead, what winds up happening with the socialist revolutionaries is they wind up splitting more or less, but not really, into the left socialist revolutionaries or the international socialist revolutionaries. And in general, I think we're going to start abbreviating this to the SRs because it's going to be way easier to say that. You have the left SRs and the internationalist SRs, and they'll wind up um, allying with the Bolsheviks later um, once they start kind of kind of splitting, kind of not splitting with their party. Um, so it's, it's just kind of interesting that there's uh, kind of a proletariat answer inside the, the city, but there's not really like a peasantry answer inside the countryside other than within the existing SR party. They have to kind of find a split there. So that's that's a little interesting to me. From this chapter, the most interesting quote that I that I got, the one that like made the most sense to me, was when he like kind of railed the social revolutionary party and said, "A party for whom everybody votes, except for the except that minority who knows what they're voting for, is no more a party than the tongue in which babies of all countries babble." is a language is a national language the social revolutionary party came forward as a solemn designation for everyone everything in the february revolution that is immature unformulated confused um that one quote that i got i was like damn he really does not like the social yeah. This getting caught, caught off. More in this chapter, but um, yeah, it 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 seems like he does not Ooh, I think your connection's breaking up a little bit there, Chris. Is your internet all right? Yeah, you're you're breaking up a little bit. Um, okay, heard. Did you guys hear what some I pieces. said? Oh, now he's really oh, gone. No. Okay, maybe he'll come back. All right, let's see if it works now. Hello. Heard that a little bit. Let's hear some more. Hello. Oh, uh, I was basically saying that the SRs, the Social Revolutionary Party, um. Let, or Trotsky just defines them as like not politically defined or ideologically cohesive. Yeah, yeah. And we sort got of tears into most them. of what you were saying. It's just toward the end it cut off. So you, you're you're good now, though. But yeah, no, that's a great point to bring up. Oh.
Um, like in, in general, kind of the February Revolution can be characterized, like you're saying, by this political immaturity. Basically, all of the classes know what they do not want, so they're all everybody's in favor of getting rid of things, but nobody has like a definitive positive program that they want to implement as of now. And that's that's kind of what leads to the ability of these um, parties like the SRs and the Mensheviks to, to kind of come to the fore because everybody's just like against stuff, but they're not really in favor of anything. So there's no real distinction between the, the Menshevik, the SRs, or the Bolsheviks or anybody else. I personally, I was reminded a lot of a local uh, party here in Argentina by the SRs because when Trotsky described how there was a dictated party with no real ideas, no real program, and uh, all of that, I was quickly told, oh, there was a socialist at this party, which is a nominally center-left party here in Argentina, who is basically like the same thing, different uh, country, different time, but they're pretty much the same. And I don't know, it's, it's really interesting to, to see how much of, of the stuff that was a problem a century ago is still a problem now having different countries. Like, I understand that for Americans, as even if us Marxist, communists, is a lot of that, understand and how the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are just two parties of the bureaucracy and all of that. And at least for the average American, they seem like two very opposite actions with very different ideas and all of that. But, but in many countries of Latin America, I have understood, but I can only certified for Argentina. A lot of prominent parties are basically the SR. They have their own left wing and right wing and enter and there. It's basically a big sham whenever a big inter party is in power because pretty much no one is. Yeah, yeah. It's good to be able to kind of draw modern day connections like that. The only thing I would say is that probably instead of the SRs, it'd be well, I don't know, because SRs are like very peasant based too, so you probably don't have too many, too much of a wide peasantry base, you know. Uh, no, we we don't really have a a peasant at class here in Argentina, but the the justice the justice party is kind of understood to be the shadow poor or on the class and workers like. We have here he a called Vichevos, which is basically the same as saying that someone is from the gate or whatever, and it is generally understood that whoever is having tends to vote for the socialist, whether it's in a union or a syndicato, as we call it, we don't really use the term unions, we use the Spanish version of syndicates, whether it's in a syndicate tends to vote for the socialist, is traditionally a populist in particular that yeah, you are correct. Any that they're not a one to one dialogue because peasantry is really a thing in Argentina and 
O sea, es, es el video antiguo en most of Latin America en el 21st century, with some possible exceptions. I don't really know only, for example, a Bolivian government with certain percentage still alive in country or not. But in most of Latin America, I would say that basically a, a more city-based equivalent to the SRs is generally what kind of parties in power in most of our countries. Yeah, and that, and that makes sense too why those types of parties wind up being, to draw back a little to the history of the Russian Revolution, it makes sense why those parties are kind of the ones that are insurgent and coming to the fore right now, it, it just reflects the lack of development of the working class too, where the working class is not very conscious or, or clear in what they want, but they just know what they don't want kind of thing. So like, like Trotsky was saying, if, if the workers wanted to cast a vote just like for the revolution in general, they were just voting for the SRs. And it wasn't like for any kind of specific type of revolution or any specific program. They're just like, we're, we're on board with the revolution. And nobody really knew what they wanted at the time. Uh, they hadn't had enough experience with the revolution to be able to say or distinguish friend from foe just yet. Um, and nobody, and that's the other thing too. Nobody had a really clear program they were defining at this point. Like we, we can talk about how the Bolsheviks later have a program after Lenin gets back and kind of imposes this program on the party. But at the moment, um, the Bolsheviks are kind of going along with the flow just as much as everybody else is. And when I say that, I mean kind of the uh, the more leader-level Bolsheviks. The, the rank-and-file Viborg district kind of workers, worker Bolsheviks are more radical than the leaders in this case. Um, there's actually a quote, too. Let me pull it up, because I wanted to read that. I thought that was a very good quote. One moment, please. They want to mention Kamenev and Stalin. Oh, sorry, I just found the quote. Did you want to say? I, I think I found the same quote, quote, and I wanted to ask if it was time oh, no, was a different just one. Go it, ahead it is and read the quote. 12, if you so the quote it. is that the workers corrected their leaders by direct action. After a long resistance, the Moscow Soviet was obliged on the 21st of March to introduce the eight-hour day by its own act. The industrialists immediately submitted in the provinces the same struggle, blah, blah, blah. Almost everywhere, the Soviets at first refrained and resisted, and afterwards, under pressure from the workers, they entered into negotiations with the manufacturers. And where the latter did not ex exceed, the Soviets were obliged independently to decree the eight-hour day. Uh, so, basically, the, the workers... I, I like this quote because it kind of illustrates the, the dynamism or the dialect, dialectical relationship between leaders and masses. People like to talk about the importance of leadership, uh, particularly Trotskyists. Um, their, their formulation is that revolutionary <laughs> leadership is kind of the most important thing. But here Trotsky is amusingly giving an example of the opposite thing, where the, the rank and file is imposing upon the leadership their own program, in this case the program of the eight-hour day, where the workers are um, not satisfied with putting off the question of the eight-hour day until later, where the leaders of these Soviets 
are trying not to rock the boat too hard. They're trying to say, okay, this is this is good. We want to maintain good relations with the the capitalists, and pushing an eight-hour day is going to really piss off the capitalists. So let's not do that. Uh, the workers are not having it, and they're like, no, we're we're getting that eight-hour day. And it's amusing that where the workers can talk to the industrialists directly about it a lot of the time the industrialists are realizing the weakness of their position and they're just like oh yeah we need to go along with this eight hour day uh it's the only way we can retain control over the factories in the first place um so the industrialists in some ways are more conscious of the situation than the leaders of the soviets at this time so i, I thought that was a good quote just because of that uh Yeah, yeah, it, it is a good quote. It is a good quote. Another one from this section is just kind of like a side note thing. Trotsky mentions, he, he starts talking about the press, and he mentions that the press does not stand above society. The conditions of its existence during a revolution reflect the progress of the revolution itself. And this is all in context where he's talking about like uh, the seizure of the press and stopping the press from printing like counter-revolutionary decrees and things like that and it's like if if the soviets are still allowing counter-revolutionary decrees to be printed and things like that then that tells you something about how the revolution is progressing and that's to say that it is not it's going in the wrong direction you know these these sorts of proclamations need to be taken down and prevented from circulation uh i know it's it's something that kind of comes up because it's a very popular uh thing to defend you know it's like free speech kind of thing and uh it's it's not this like abstract right or whatever. It's just another measure of strength in allowing your enemy to have these uh, freedoms, quote unquote, is is not conducive to winning the class struggle. You know, like people like to put these principles up on a pedestal, and it's like, oh no, we we have to respect everybody's freedom of speech, and it's like, no, no, we need to we need to win the uh, class war, and that's uh, pursuing working class interests is going to be silencing counter revolutionary speech. You know, it's it's necessary. And he, he points out that, you know, a revolution takes into its hands uh, life and death, uh, which is going to be generally more more important than just people's ability to speak is their ability to live, you know. And the guillotine is brought out during the revolution. So if, if we're going to do that, then surely we're also going to be interested in silencing them uh, just from being able to print things, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's a waste, waste. I think the <laughs> uh, sorry for being a little bit shocking about it, but ironically, like I, I understand from the socially uneducated perspective, those uh, the people who are not educated in, in you know, or class conflict and all of that. Why so many people worry about how the world? free speech thing and all. I know I used to be like that. I was, I was part of a liberal and all of that, but ironically, like, I, I, at the end of the day, I work to understand that uh, if, if life can't be taken, can't be fact, it's not something so serious that uh, you can kill someone over it, I think it's justified to even before that, I say no. You can't. I say that like censorship 
it's something that is a nice grave of killing, so I don't know why so many people or think, oh no, free speech has to be sanctified. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Didn't the, like, the reverse happen, too? Didn't he mention that, like, the Bolsheviks, like, their newspapers and yes, yes, communications that's exactly were, what happened were shut down. Which makes it, like, all the more amusing. They're, they're always, they being the people in power and, like, the the current leaders at this point of the Soviets are, like, concerned with like freedom of the press and so forth but they're like actively silencing the bolsheviks so their concern for freedom of the press is really a naked class interest they're like i said they're not interested in pissing off the capitalists or the bourgeoisie at this moment so like they're just using and that's that's ultimately what it boils down to is that like the freedom of the press freedom of speech it's just a cover for class interest and in this case it's a cover for the class interest of of the capitalists you know if if the Bolsheviks were to take up the cry of freedom of speech to prevent their stuff from being suppressed, then it would be a cover for the interests of the working class. But the thing is, working class interests are best expressed honestly. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg famously said that the truth is revolutionary, and it's best to communicate clearly to the working class and honestly with them. So we don't generally indulge in rhetoric like freedom of speech to protect our own speech because that's not how we see it. We see it as the ability to inform and agitate in our own interests. We don't see it as like an abstract right of speech. So that's kind of why the the right wing tends to have a monopoly on uh, rhetoric surrounding that while at the same time suppressing those kinds of rights, you know? Yeah, I'm very glad that we now have. Oh no, you're breaking up again. We can we can get bits and pieces, but it is kind of. No. Let's try again. Seems okay. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I I'm on my phone today. I thoroughly regret now. <laughs> oh my god. Bro, are you uh suppressing his speech through the Discord? <laughs> oh no. I was what I was gonna say was thank god oh, we go. have freedom of speech now and they don't silence communists, as I say from Florida. Which yeah, which by the way, it is like Ron DeSantis's um, censorship of critical, uh, what is it? Critical race studies is actually like super, super big deal in like universities. Um, I know a lot of my colleagues, comrades in UCF, are like suffering right now. Yeah, I got you. because of it. But yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Let's see, I'm not Tragedy. sure I had anything else too much from, I mean, like, chapter 12 is, is mostly kind of like an accounting of, of individuals and parties and things like that. He's, he's going through of, like, you know, well, one of the important things he brings up is, like we were talking about, the fact that all of your first-rate leaders uh, are abroad or in exile or arrested. So all of the second- and third-rate leaders who are here are kind of just trying not to screw it up 
so they don't actually want to do very much. It's that thing where, for some reason, it feels like not taking decisions or making a holding action feels like not making a decision, even though it is a decision, right? So that's kind of why everything's kind of at a standstill and nobody's trying to push the revolution any further. Once once all the, the leaders get back, everybody, you kind of get more of a harmonization between the the masses and the leaders uh, who are trying to push forward so you get some more action uh, but yeah I mean I know Mug just left but that's that's kind of actually more or less what's what's going on here so do we just want to do unless anybody else has any kind of final closing thoughts comments questions concerns things like that I think we can just do two more chapters for next week which is Unfortunately, going to be another setting up the board week, but after next week, Lennon comes back, and it'll it'll be more interesting. So we'll get a good talk about what's going on inside the Bolshevik party and so on and so forth. school by me, that's perfectly fine. I wanted to mention one of the uh, uh, characters that uh, we didn't really talk about, but was mentioned in chapter 12, but, but I want Chris to, to be able to speak his mind first, so or he can uh, live in the fortress if he wants, because it's just a, a music literary side I wanted to make. Yeah, I, I, I should definitely, um, next time, connect to my computer instead of my phone. This was uh, a very, very um, unfortunate um, sequence of events. And like, it's crazy. You're coming through fine right now. But, so, you know, yeah. it must just be a spotty connection. I, I'm good with two chapters as well. You're ruining our podcast. Nah, I'm playing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. It might be the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I get it. For me, it's the opposite the case where my computer is generally fine, but my phone is better because of my computer is from like 2011. Mm. Usually, my phone is better, but I don't know. It's it could CIA. be whatever. Maybe, maybe the Wi Fi, I mean, your son is spotty. It went there like gloves out or something, something he don't like that. Well Well if Chris has already he made his thoughts, I just wanted to mention one little oh god I might I just wanted to mention one little guy more and that is my favorite loser in all of this Chernov. Like this is purely because uh, maybe like a year ago I had listened to a general podcast about revolutions in general. It, it kind of turned liberal towards the end, so I won't even say what the podcast was. Uh, and I won't recommend it, but turn off, turn off, turn off. This guy, this guy, I, it's going to be a funny how, how Tioski decides to mention him or not moving forward but uh, this is the maximum the best example I can think of of a political normal 
Uh, from my understanding, from what I remember, this guy was, was like purely uh, in the classic, his ascension, he says, I don't want to take a side. And he, he really thinks that in action is some kind of action. And it's kind of funny because Trotsky eventually will do the same thing when trying to negotiate a peace with the Germans or whatever, but it's, it's, it's always really funny when someone thinks that they can choose to not take any action and that's somehow go, going to play out in their favor. It's kind of amusing. It's kind of, it's kind of funny how some yeah, people have... Yeah, I do like the way Trotsky describes Chernov. He calls him a well-read rather than educated man. <laughs> I think that's really funny. Yeah, yeah, like, there's so much, there's so much, like, disrespect it does. I think, well-read, but not educated. Oh, I, again, I, I really, really, I, I want to, to make this clear. I, I don't say that I necessarily agree with Trotsky politically, but, but the guy really yeah. knows how to... Or, Oh, well, someone. Hey, there's, there's nothing else we can we can adjourn for the week and uh, appreciate everybody making it this time around. Uh, we'll we'll do two more for next week. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm. See you later, Adios. Adios.